eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. But yeah, you know, you really need to, to, to put your ego aside because there are no credits on the front or the back. Um, you never hear... You know, when they when when a segment goes well, it's like, oh, my God, that rock segment was awesome or that, you know, Jericho segment was awesome. They don't say like, oh, the blank name of the writer segment really killed it. Um, When a segment goes south, you know, whether I mean, there's the online reaction, of course, but even internally, it's like Vince wants to see you at gorilla position, you know, the backstage area right before you go through the curtain, Um, you know, occasionally the talent, too. But there's a lot of pressure. Uh, on you to deliver because you're only as good as your last show. So you really don't have the ability to be like riding high. There's so many times I could point out like the high of a previous show and then failing spectacularly the next week. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. I was uh, very excited to have this guest on the podcast, and uh, the conversation was terrific. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you do as well. Brian Gewertz is a senior vice president of development at Seven Bucks Productions. That's the production company co-founded by Dwayne Johnson, obviously probably more well-known as The Rock, and his producing partner, Danny Garcia. And Brian Gewertz was a WWE writer from 1999 to 2015 and a head writer at that company. He has written a new book, There's Just One Problem, True Tales from the Former, One-Time, Seventh Most Powerful Person in WWE. And it gives great insight into what his job was, and it was a fascinating one for sure. It's, um, it's very honest. It's certainly not burying the WWE, but he does take you behind the scenes and give you just great insight into some of the rivalries that existed, some of the most famous things that we saw on screen. Again, Brian wrote for years for The Rock. He wrote for Roddy Piper. He wrote for Kurt Angle. I mean, he got sort of current to the point where he, he did do some stuff for Becky Lynch. Um, he has uh, he has had a very, very interesting career. And prior to his WWE work, he, uh, he worked as a sitcom writer, including for uh, uh, a Jenny McCarthy show called Jenny and uh, Nancy Travis and some other stuff. So we had a really, really great conversation, got into a lot of stuff, including the skills and temperament one needs to write for a professional wrestling company, what it was like for Brian to write for people who are obviously very different than him. You know, Brian is indeed not The Rock, though he wrote for The Rock and, and Kurt Angle and others. Talked about Vince McMahon's departure from WWE over alleged sexual misconduct and what that will mean for the company. Why Brian wanted to write the book. Brian worked on the original XFL product, which was, just to be blunt, a shit show. And uh, and just a number of other things. It's a little under an hour. Again, I know everybody's not a wrestling fan, and I understand that. But uh, this is sort of this is not just sort of storyline and stuff like that. It, it gets into just an interesting, crazy kind of role. And that is uh, someone who writes professional wrestling for the most famous professional wrestling company out there so much appreciate brian gewertz i wish him the best of luck with his book and without further ado brian gewertz senior vice president of development at seven bucks productions and the former head writer for the wwe all right as i said at the top i have been looking forward to this interview for a long time because i find what um 
our guest has done in the past and even what he's doing currently. Really, really fascinating. Brian Gewertz is an executive producer for NBC's Young Rock as part of his role as a senior vice president of development at Seven Bucks Productions. That is the production company co-founded by Dwayne Johnson and his producing partner, Danny Garcia. He is here on this podcast as the author of There's Just One Problem, True Tales from the Former one-time, seventh most powerful person in WWE. Though the title of that book obviously self-deprecating, Brian Gewertz is a former head writer for the WWE, worked as a writer for that company from 1999 to 2015, um, has had incredible influence, if you were a pro wrestling fan at that time, of so many of the most famous things that you saw on the WWE airwaves. And... As I've said on this podcast many times, like writing for professional wrestling, at least in my opinion, it's a fascinating sort of subgenre of writing itself. And also, if you understand professional wrestling and its tropes, I think you honestly have an upper hand on understanding the state of politics in America in 2022. And with that, I bring in Brian Gewertz. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Uh, this is a great uh, ramp up. I'm uh, very, very happy to be here and talking. And and as you know, as as well known, um, you know, the book coming out tomorrow uh, or on Tuesday, the 16th. Um, but my Mets are in first place and they're doing like very, very unmets like things. So I'm a little, you know, just this whole week has been just very overwhelming. Yeah. These are the salad days from Ryan Gortz. The Mets are in first place. The <laughs> bills are a uh, preseason Super Bowl favorite. You have a book coming out. And again, Brian, um, coming on this podcast, which I believe will be your 74th podcast that you've done since the uh, book promotion has come. Um, I'm going to try to do my best to, uh, to ask you a couple of different questions than, uh, than the previous ones that you've did. I watched the Ariel Hawani podcast. I thought that was really, really interesting. He obviously is a very, very big um, wrestling fan. But uh, we'll try to go a little, I think, on this podcast, a little more process for you, uh, just to sort of change it up a little bit and less sort of some of the famous storylines that you were part of. So let's let's start here. Um, what are the skills and temperament one needs to write for a professional wrestling company? Um, I would say you really it, it's very, very important to uh, not have an ego. And it is and it, clear from the outset because like any like any other uh, unlike any other television show. And by the way, this is the uh, daily reminder of the 74 podcast, New York City police sirens and or uh Fire trucks have awesome. We love we love that sound on this podcast. I used to yeah. I lived in New York City for twenty years, so we're kindred spirits there. So yeah, if you can actually create some kind of disturbance outside of uh, this the uh, the interview, that'd be awesome because I can yeah. always use the sound. Well, we'll see if Luis Gourmet's uh, MRI comes back bad. <laughs> a lot of screaming from here. Um, but yeah, you know, you really need to, to to put your ego aside because there are no credits on the front or the back. Um, you never hear. You know, when they when when a segment goes well, it's like, oh, my God, that rock segment was awesome or that, you know, Jericho segment was awesome. They don't say like, oh, the blank name of the writer segment really killed it. Um, when a segment goes south, you know, whether I mean, there's the online reaction, of course, but even internally, it's like Vince wants to see you at gorilla position, you know, the backstage area right before you go through the curtain, um, you know, occasionally the talent, too. But there's a lot of pressure. Uh, on you to deliver because you're only as good as your last show. So you really don't have the ability to be like riding high. There's so many times I could point out like the high of a previous show and then failing spectacularly the next week or when we were going to Raw and SmackDown back to back, literally the next day, you know, you really can't get too high. And you also have to be, you know, uh, you know, okay with failure because there's just so much content um, you know, two, three hour show on Monday, two hour show on fr Friday, which is, you know, when I was there, it was taped on Tuesdays, uh, three hour pay-per-view the day before so many characters, sometimes something hits, sometimes stuff doesn't, you know, you really can't get too high or too low, you know, cause there's just the need to do a show every single week. There's no repeats. There's no, you know, off season, there's no hiatus, <laughs> you know, it's just on every single week. Uh, so you have to be relentless. 
you have to be creative. You can't really, you don't have time for burnout as weird as that sounds, you know, cause it would seem like it would be just something that you can't avoid. Um, and then occasionally it does come up, but you know, when you're in the grind, when you're in the thick of it, it's just like onto the next show, onto the next show. Uh, and, and not, um, you know, getting your hopes up when the uh, 8.30 in the morning Emmy nominations come out sometime in July, because you're not going to be on it. You um, you mentioned that uh, you mentioned about the grind. And for people who are not uh, and there certainly will be people who listen to this podcast who are not wrestling fans. I understand that um, WWE is, is a 52 weeks a year product. Um, you go to different cities. There are. Uh, let's say between 60 and 100 characters uh the writers have to know if they're good the history of the backstories that can go back decades you were a writer's assistant on a nancy travis show you were a writer on jenny which starred jenny mccarthy i think you i think you had another hollywood credit so you did prior to joining wwe you had worked in hollywood for a couple of years um what were the similarities uh between writing for a sitcom and writing for WWE, if there were similarities. Um, well, by the way, there were there were two other credits, very esteemed shows. Uh, one of them being Claude's Crib on the USA Network, um, and the other one being Big Wolf on Campus uh, on Fox Family, which, which actually had multiple seasons. It, it was kind of like a it was supposed to be like a Buffy Light, you know, kind of thing back in the. Who was who is the lead? Who who starred in that? Who was the main star of that? Um, the Wolf. You know, yeah. I didn't really get to uh, know the wolf. I, I wasn't, you know, it's funny. They, they shot it in Canada. So we'd write all the shows in L.A., but then they'd go off to write it in Canada. Um, I, I could frantically, since this is a podcast, go on IMDb. But he did do other things. I remember he did do several people from that cast went on to do. Right. All right. So this wasn't like uh, D David Boreanaz before, let's say, he became like some, uh, you know. No, I think like made stars. One. I'm going to look it up afterwards. I think. The yeah, no, it's fine. You, 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 well for himself. Um, right. But yeah, there, there were, you know, the similarities, you know, it, and it evolved really because there wasn't really a quote unquote writer's room. Uh, when we I started at WWE because there was only two writers at the time. Um, the, the closest thing to a writer's room was, you know, those Tuesday morning meetings in Vince's hotel suite when we would write SmackDown. Um, and, you know, and the major difference being like on on the werewolf show, for instance, you know, we had several weeks, if not a couple months to write the scripts, get him in order. When we when my writing partner and I were, you know, we wrote two episodes of that show we went off to outline to, to write the outline first and then go pour over the outline with the showrunner and then write the script another week, a full week, you know, to write the script. Uh, whereas, you know, for SmackDown circa 1999, 2000, 2001, it was that morning you'd write the script and produce it and it would air, um, you know, or, or at least go live to tape that day, uh, airing a couple of days later. So that was, you know, that was a major, major difference. You know, you still have to like pitch things and be vocal and kind of have to put your fear aside um, of like, oh, shoot, what if this bombs? What if no one likes this? What if it's, you know, if you're trying to be funny, what if nobody's laughing? You know, that's obviously prevalent in, in comedy writer room. But in uh, WWE, you know, you're really pitching everything, matches, drama, backstage stuff, interviews, who goes over, i.e. who wins, who doesn't, where is this going? If someone asks you, okay, great, you want this guy to beat that guy, where, what are you going to do next week? I'm like, well, um, you could do this, this, or this. I'm like, okay, well, uh, I don't like any of those things. What else you got? You know, there's a lot of variables. Uh, obviously, huge difference, you know, with WWE is like, you know, the, the you know, Jenny McCarthy and the cast of Jenny isn't touring around the country during the week you know, but right before you do the uh, TV taping. So you're not going to like get a call saying, hey, two of the co-stars uh, injured themselves and are going to be out six to eight weeks spending their MRI and x-rays. Uh, that variable happened. I mean, I remember like right when we were getting into the group of evolution, which is Triple H's group, Triple H, Ric Flair, Batista and Randy Orton, uh, Batista and Orton uh, got injured at a live event. Um, and we had to completely scramble. Um, you know, we heard about the injury over the weekend and we had a show that Monday. So that aspect, you know, that's just, you know, unheard of, obviously, um, you know, for, for sitcoms and dramas. I mean, obviously things can happen 
which are rare as far as, you know, whatever afflictions occurring to a cast member, but not on a regular. They're not like putting their bodies on the line literally every single week, three shows, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, prior to the Monday TV show. You know, I imagine that your answer here is going to be the same as well. You know, you wrote for Jenny and obviously you're not Jenny McCarthy. But one of the things that like is always interesting to me. And let's take the case of Kurt Angle, Mm -hmm. who um, you wrote for for many years. Kurt Angle has called you the best wrestling writer in history. He's obviously incredibly fond of you. You had a great uh, relationship. For those who don't know, Kurt Angle, on top of obviously being one of the more famous WWE stars, was an Olympic gold medalist, like one of the great athletes in wrestling for his time. Uh, I think it's fair to say, Brian, that you two are very different. You know, you're, he's an Olympic gold medalist, and you know, you were a Jewish kid who went to Syracuse uh, at Newhouse, but yet you got him. Like you were able to write for him, and it worked great on the screen. So again, this is sort of a larger kind of writing question. How does one write for someone who on face is so different than them? You know, a lot of it is it's a boon to have people to write for that you're so that are so different from you, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, I forget what the term is. Um, It's not hero placement, but it's something like like I could never uh, say you know, it, let me go. Let me backtrack. I, I would always kind of like use the measuring stick of a good character, especially like in the late 90s or what have you, as someone who, oh, I wish I could go back in high school uh, and take this person's persona and steal it uh, with the assumption that back back in, you know, late 80s, early 90s, no one knows who this person is and just be the coolest person in the world. So if you could do that, if like I could all of a sudden transform myself into Stone Cold Steve Austin or The Rock or, you know, something like truly badass or, or even like a wise ass like Chris Jericho uh, or even Kurt, you know, uh, you know, during certain phases of his career that, you know, is a good character. If you say like, you know, I don't want to pick on any wrestler, but if, if you just take a wrestler and you can't imitate that person's voice, then that's probably a problem with that character. But, you know, for people who are so much different than you, it's it's really kind of a, it's a great fantasy to be able to like. Okay, I can't say this in real life, but I can imagine this, you know, I could have this person say all the things that I wish I could say uh, if I was in that situation. Um, You know, in the cases when I get into arguments with Vince uh, and Vince was a character on TV, it's like I can't tell off Vince backstage, but I could have The Rock, you know, tell him off and and say things that, you know, sometimes deep down I was feeling, uh, but couldn't say, you know, exactly to his face and stuff. So it's yeah, it's like, you know, I'd imagine it's like writing for superheroes, really. It's like you can't um, I can't place myself as the mighty Thor or anything like that. But I'm sure um, it would be a hell of a lot of fun to try to write, you know, a Marvel or DC movie and have those heroes come to life because it's what you've always wanted to be deep down and always wanted to do. And Kurt is actually Kurt's kind of the exception, because unlike so many wrestlers, Kurt and I actually are. I would say alike in some respects Um, from the, you know, Kurt is just like this, this, you know, at least when he started, it was this like nerdy guy who was tiptoeing into this world. He really like didn't know much about. In fact, I knew a lot more about WWE than Kurt did because I had watched it for, you know, almost two decades before I started. Whereas Kurt, you know, was so focused on his amateur career. He hadn't really started uh, watching it until a couple of years earlier. So, uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, wish fulfillment. Is that it? I don't know. But we're, yeah, yeah. That's it. It, it's great to be able to be like, oh, my God, like a wrestler based on my own persona uh, it would be very, very boring and very, very beatable. <laughs> but I could I could put words in the rock, you know, persona like that. That is awesome. Did you um, you've obviously now worked with Dwayne Johnson for a long time, your professional colleagues, your friends. Did you um, did you find in the same way that you had with Kurt Angle, were there similarities to uh, the two of you where you can find that world? Or is he truly like the opposite, like the, you know, the different id for you where you were just like writing for a superhero character in this sense? Um, I mean, a little bit of both, you know, with Rock, we are basically the same age. He's a year older than me. Um you know, we, we, in fact, he went, so he went to Miami, obviously, 
right played yeah football played football there. there and i you know in hindsight i didn't realize it obviously at the time but i booed the loving shit out of him and all his teammates <laughs> you know when miami would come to the carrier dome there was one particular game i remember freshman year so his sophomore year but really his first year playing because he got hurt freshman year um where we were stopped on like the three yard line we came within three yards of beating miami and I remember, and they were all celebrating on the field and like kind of like taunting the fans and everything. And I remember, I'm not really uh, a loud booer. I'm not really, I usually just, you know, keep it all in. But I remember booing the holy hell out of the Canes that night. Um, but yeah, it's like, we 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 are very different, obviously. Um, but also we kind of have the same sense of humor. Uh, and we also grew up in the same time. So we both have the same influences as far as 80s movies and cartoons and and all that kind of thing you know like as, as from our childhood i was a very different childhood too i like grew up on long island you know i think uh my family moved from one you know a place in limbrook a place to woodmere when i was four years old and stayed there ever since whereas Dwayne, you know <laughs> had a dozens of different homes that's kind of like the whole that's how we kind of got around to young rock is like every time we go to a different town and put a promo together. He'd like, Oh, you know, I lived here back in 1988. Like what? <laughs> but you said you lived in, t- Oh yeah. I lived there too. Um, so he was just all over the place, but yeah, there, there's like the stuff that he brings to the table. You know, he brings from a very unique perspective of his own stuff. I bring to the table is unique to me as well. And there's a lot of stuff that overlap, even though, uh, you know, on the surface and everything. Yeah. Physically, athletically, <laughs> you know, you couldn't be more different. Um, but yeah, he's like a very humble down to earth guy who grew up in the eighties, idolized Harrison Ford and star Wars and Indiana Jones, you know, loves Clint Eastwood, like all the stuff. There's so many just, you know, pop culture things that we're on the same level with, uh, and, and, you know, love a good insult and, uh, as well, as far as, uh, you know, his promos and everything that that really meshed together pretty well. I do one more sort of this process stuff, and then I'll get do a couple of things from the book. Um, if you you in the book, you talked about that for anybody who for anybody listening here who's young and is a fan of pro wrestling, let's say wanted to write for it, um, you believe out you know as the the uh, the expression goes in the wrestling world, product knowledge is obviously important. To be a fan, it, as you as you have said, it would be very hard to write for pro wrestling if you were not a fan. You would have to just essentially catch up on so much stuff. It would make the writing harder that said um in my world you know when you think about like if you wanted to become a sports writer you know you would put your together like a clip package your resume and you would if you didn't have a word of mouth or networking contact you would sometimes just cold resume like to some newspaper or magazine you loved and hope that you know maybe someone would read your stuff and you'd get a call is it like is it possible to almost do that with like a the WWE or AEW where you would send to their human resources person or sent to someone who's a executive there like almost write a treatment or write like a like a scripted uh uh storyline scenario like could that work or is this world now where they're so big there's so much money floating in that they're gonna try to recruit hollywood writers the way you know you sort of ultimately came in no there's there's um it, it works both ways and obviously, too, like, as you know, like they didn't recruit me. No, you're you were you're, if you read the book in Brian's, he's sort of like they were desperate for writers at that time. Um, and he had been brought in once before. So he was a little bit of a known quantity. But I think, Brian, you would even admit this in many ways, like sort of fortune hit you in terms of timing in that they desperately need you. You proved yourself and then you became an invaluable part of the machine. Oh, totally. Yeah. And they, and they do do recruiting as well. But they also do they post jobs on. um uh, I forget exactly which websites. I think uh, for a while it was hot jobs. I don't know if that's still a thing that they do, but I do know like uh, it's like Nikon.com <laughs> or something. Yeah. Well, there's a process where they, you know, they kind of put it out there like uh, and, and they give you, you know, the the, you know, parameters of which to submit something. They want you to have some samples and, and, and what a sample, I think, at least was when I was there, was some sample storylines to do, like something that would play out over a month, let's say, three, four weeks. Um, and, you know, what you would do with established character and that type of thing. You don't need to write a full television script. You don't have to do seg one, this person faces this person. But like, OK, here's a story of, you know, Randy Orton 
versus Grimace from McDonald's. I'll just come up with that. <laughs> I would Main love event that. in any arena across the country. Um, you know, in, in week one, this would happen. And then week two, Grimace would get his heat back and go to, you know, stalk Randy Orton in the thing. So, yeah, they they want to see, you know, at least when I was there, like you have not only product knowledge, but how to apply that product knowledge and, and come up with something compelling and something that's interesting that hasn't been done before. Um, and yeah, you know, I would say the ratio of success at WWE, uh, from a writing standpoint, almost, I wouldn't say almost all of it, but definitely over 60% of it, um, of the people who've come and gone there, who've been successful have come in internally, either as a writer's assistant or as someone who like started at a lower level than worked their way up. Um, you know, most of the people who are brought in, you know, with big Hollywood credits and everything, um, you know, with some exceptions, uh, haven't had that product knowledge. So they're behind the eight ball right away. They're not like, uh, again, it's a different story now with, with SmackDown being live on Fridays, but back then Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the, you know, the travel is just like a wallop to, you know, a shock to the system. Like, wait a minute, it's 11, 15, 1130 at night. And now we're going to drive you no know, 200 miles to the next town in the cold, you know, that type of thing. Um, you know, this is in some cases, you know, when when I was there, this was even before GPS um, and, and and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's like a it is a shock to the system. But, you know, being able to be comfortable, but not like a like a giant fan freaking out and, you know, talking about like, oh, there's Matt Hardy. He was you know, he had this match in 1992 against someone's, you know, and just, you know, losing your, your shit because you see a wrestler. Um, you know, that's a detriment, but, but knowing, you know, the, the character's history and what they're capable of is obviously a big, uh, you know, big advantage. All right. So how, let me sort of make sure I can sort of phrase this right. Th there have been a lot of wrestling books, as you know, Brian, um, where there are people who are like, were not happy with their career and they will just basically do a tell all on how things were horrible for them. There are other books that um, are very celebratory of the subject, you know, like uh, I don't even want to mention any wrestler's name, but, you know, whatever they're, you know, they're putting themselves over in the parlance of, of wrestling that like, like sort of like they're, you know, if they were screwed, it was the other people screwing them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the reasons I really liked your book is because you sort of. You let us inside behind the scenes, like in things like wrestling court or how you first met Roddy Piper and worked for him and sort of the behind the scenes of Roddy. I thought that like the most where you really went in depth sort of gave us some behind the scenes stuff is the relationship between John Cena and the rock and how the promos that they went against each other sort of crossed over into some real life heat. Um, and this was really revolving around the idea of John Cena making comments initially that Dwayne Johnson wasn't really all in on WWE, if he's sort of going to Hollywood and then occasionally coming back, you can read the book and you'll find all this out. My long filibuster here is that you made an interesting choice as a writer to let us in behind the scenes, but you didn't necessarily, you didn't bury anybody. And you, in many ways are very self-deprecating and I think self-aware of your own role in some of this stuff. So I guess I just want to ask you, like, why did the decision to write the book as you did? And if you can be candid, did you run some things by some people to um, make sure that they were comfortable putting it out there? Because you clearly didn't go in saying, I'm burning the place down and this is my, you know, here's why WWE is horrible thing. I, I found it really interesting just the way you wrote the book. And so I wanted to get some insight into how you approached it. No, thanks. Um, yeah. I mean, look, the truth is I, I, I need I wanted to go into this book. Not from a I'm going to bury someone perspective or I'm going to put myself over perspective, but from an honest perspective um, and from like an honest point of view, uh, I, for the most part, had a pretty good time when I was there. Um, I did not get along with everybody. I got along with a lot of people. I had some really great times. I had some extraordinarily frustrating times. Um, and I just wanted to, like, you know, just tell it. And I think, you know, the books that 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 influenced me the right the wrestling books were you know mick foley's chris jericho's they they were able to like when you read their books you're like wow this person is not putting on a gloss or a coat of paint 
they're telling an honest story, but it's also not like this bitter trip down, like this person then screwed me. And I think, you know, this person took my spot or whatever it is like you. And maybe some people might not respond to that because they're accustomed to the burial book. I don't know if anyone's really accustomed to the, you know, put yourself over for 280 page book. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just wanted to be able to tell it from, you know, from a real perspective, like, Hey, this is, there, there are times I was frustrated. There are times I was happy and elated. There are times where I thought I was losing my mind, but here it is words and all. And yeah, there were a couple of, you know, I cite it in the book. There's a, you know, Michael Cole, uh, you know, I was like, are you cool if I uh, sell the story? He's like, yeah, man, go for it. Like Michael Hayes, for instance, the free bird, Michael Hayes. Yeah. Always had this attitude of like, yeah, tell whatever the fuck you want. I don't care. I'm still going to be over. <laughs> You know, like there's nothing that conveys him. That being said, I sent Michael a book. He uh, texted me. <laughs> I sent a text from Michael Hayes. I'm like, oh, boy. Uh, and he's like, got the book. Thanks. I'm like, OK, good, good. I thought, you know, for a second, you know, what the fuck are you doing talking about me in the XFL? You know, like that kind of thing. But he's always been, you know, Michael's Michael. He, he's like, yeah, that this is who I am. Um, it led to a very, very, you know, successful and lucrative podcast career for Bruce Pritchard telling uh, Michael Hayes stories. So that's all good. And then some people, uh, like in the case of, of, of like John Cena and Paul Heyman, um, I didn't really, you know, and again, I, I don't want, I, I like both of those guys. I don't want to have any kind of, you know, kind of burial type m mindset for, from certainly from anyone reading it. Um, but I wanted to tell like, you know, the truth of, of what my experience was at least. Uh, and I did tell them after the fact. So I saw them right before I went to Australia for season two of Young Rock. John was at an MSG uh, live event for WWE. Paul was obviously there. Uh, and I told him about the book and I told him like, oh, I tell the story of when we were rivals on head writers for Raw and SmackDown. And I told John about like I got into a chapter about the whole WrestleMania thing. The fact that we're in a really, really good place now, you know, uh, definitely helps with that. Because if there's like lingering heat then it's kind of raised eye. Wait a minute. What exactly did you say? Like the fact that like, you know, we're really, really cool. And, you know, really even during our time there was cool. It was just like going, you know, put it going into the trenches and you kind of like, it's like the, I said, it was once it was like the wire. It's like, this is the game. You know what the game is. Um, so, yeah, I, I told John and Paul, you know, last September uh, about this book coming out and and they know me. And then there's like a certain level of trust. They know that this isn't going to be like a, burn it all down type of book that it's going to be like the funny stories and the crazy stories and the this is not particularly believable but i swear this happened type stories um yeah so for the most part and then there were a couple times i went to uh i sent chapters of the edge and christian wrestlers court uh to edge and christian ahead of time just in a am i leaving anything out uh, or is this, this is the way it happened. Right. You know, and they, you know, I, I was happy that it was accurate, but you know, I was of course at the time, so focused on myself, uh, that I had forgotten a lot of their antics. So, you know, Christian Jay was like, Oh, you know, we had a fake book with our uh, pictures on I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, and edge Adam was telling me, yeah. And you know, we, we paid undertaker off after afterwards with uh you know some some liquor and everything like oh thank you yes so that was very helpful as far as uh fact checking and you know making sure it was accurate as possible um do maybe you've already heard from some of the principals but do you care or is it important to you how uh the top people at wwe um perceive this book or reacted to this book yeah, I, I haven't really gotten, you know, it, it hasn't, you know, it, it officially comes out this week. Um, and I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know what the specific, you know, reaction to things. I, I think it will go over well because it really is a celebration of, you know, I would agree with that. My company and, 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 and my time at the company and, you know, that whole era anyway. It isn't like, you know, again, I don't really have any interest. It's just not my style to be like, you know, burning bridges and, and everything else. Um, but also not to do this rose colored, you know, uh, fantasy either, it, you know, so I think they'll appreciate that. And I think, you know, when they read it, they'll like it because again, 
you know, I, I mentioned this once before, like when I started that movie Beyond the Mat had come out and, you know, it's a great film and it's really, really, you know, takes you backstage. But I remember the WWE reaction to it. This again, I had just started when it came out was, man, we gave them all that access and they paint us so dark and gloomy and kind of a downtrodden place to work. Whereas, you know, it's really kind of, it is sometimes just a live live action Muppet show backstage um, with people running around and, and, and hair wardrobe props, like everything you could, you know, that goes into putting a live show. Um, and it really, you know, that movie didn't necessarily capture the spirit of that. It did a little bit, but it focused, its focus was elsewhere. Um, and I kind of, I, I wanted to capture the spirit of that and I think it did. So I think they'd be happy with it. This episode is brought to you by progressive insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to get to the XFL before we get out of here, just because as a sports media podcast, I think my listeners will be um, fascinated by this. But this, you have gotten some kind of questions around this, and this is going to come up, especially as you do publicity. So as we tape this, um, people know that Vince McMahon has left WWE. Um, according to the Wall Street Journal, other reports, he made about $20 million in undisclosed payments um, and unrecorded expenses that led to his exit in the company. There's been a lot of talk, obviously, about what those payments were for, um, including um, perhaps uh, hush money to people to sort of not disclose relationships between, obviously, Vince McMahon and others in the company uh, for just for 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 the sake of letting people know where things stand. The WWE board is currently overseeing an independent investigation of the previous payments and allegations. This getting to you, Brian is this is not something that you would have anticipated having to be asked about during your book publicity tour. But because it's such a WWE um, heavy book, um, I wanted to know, if does it change the promotion for what you're doing at all? And, um, and what are your feelings now on the fact that Vince McMahon, such a central figure in your book and such a central figure in your life, is no longer at the head of the company? Well, obviously, yeah, it, it changes, you know, from a company standpoint, it changes everything. The guy who was in charge for so many years, um, you know, for for a, a lifetime, really, um, you know, now being gone. I mean, it, like it, it from my perspective, from the book perspectives, you know, s- specifically from a book perspective, um, it doesn't really change anything because, you know, my relationship with Vince and my story and everything that I experienced from my perspective really doesn't have, you know, doesn't intersect with that and doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, you know, so from that perspective, it's just like, yeah, here's the, here's the experience that I went through from my POV and it's in the book. And yeah, a, a lot of things, you know, I, like I talk in the end of the book about, you know, seeing Vince at, at, at you know, live events or raw or SmackDown tapings when I go back stage and he's no longer there. So from I, I and you know you can't anticipate you know anything that seismic happening like that. So in in some respects, it's uh, uh, you know when people you know will read that, like, there'll definitely be a light bulb over their heads saying, ah, yes, a lot has changed since then uh, in such a short amount of time. And it's you know it's obviously it's it's hard to really even process all the the the, the gigantic changes that the company you know is now going to be going through. Um, you know, it's also pretty exciting from the perspective of, okay, where do they go from here and what happens now? And, and, and you see it kind of on the shows as far as like release talent being brought back and yeah. NXT favorites who obviously I don't think Vince had the bandwidth to watch NXT and really get to know those talents. And so it would be like, that's NXT. This is WWE. Let's start over. Um, and that, that doomed a lot of NXT talents from the get go. Um, and now you know, with Triple H being so, Paul Levesque being so ingrained in NXT and knowing those characters, you know, you see a vast difference as far as like how they're presented and hence the show benefits from that, from that perspective. So yeah, like, like the short answer of it 
is, I don't think it really, you know, from my perspective, because this book is from my POV and, and my relationship and everything, I don't think it really affects it. Obviously, in the real world and the show and what the company's dealing with, um, you know, the events of the past month have had gigantic seismic implications and changes and everything else. Um, but, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, again, just from my perspective, two, two different tracks. Last one on this. Uh, you were there. You're in the middle of all this. Um, do the allegations change your perception of Vince? Um, how do you just process the um, what's been what's been alleged and the person that you worked with for nearly 15, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, it, it will, you know, it can't not you can't just be like on the one hand, you can't be like, oh, well, it's Vince being Vince. You know, it's like that's kind of a cold way of looking at it, especially with with real people affected. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, on the flip side, there's a lot of stuff that's still, you know, information and everything that needs to come out and, and needs to be fully explained in terms of what happened. But, yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, from a from the boss perspective at WWE, um, nothing really changes again, because from my perspective, we that was our relationship um, from a, you know, but open your eyes and look at what's happening in the real world perspective. Uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, you kind of want to, you want to see all the information come out and, and see how everything unfolds, but I definitely have opinions on it. I mean, I don't necessarily want to get into it specifically, but you know, like, I'm a, you know, like, a, like every human being, you, you, you see, you know, the news and you process it and you, uh, you know, you definitely have opinions on it. Um, and it's going to be, I mean, look, it's going to be pretty fascinating to, you know, what transpires over the next year or so. I appreciate your answering that. It's not easy questions for you. I understand that. Um, let's get, um, let's get to the XFL. I was fascinated by your chapters on the XFL and let me just be blunt. It honestly comes off like a shit show. <laughs> like it's unbelievable. Like that thing even got off the ground. So you're there, Dick Ebersol, very famous figure in my world, uh, uh, you know, produced Saturday Night Live, but beyond that, was the head of NBC Sports forever. Um, what were those productions meetings like? You're not, I mean, you know, you you signed up to be a wrestling person. Yeah. Like, you didn't sign up to be a, like a football production uh, expert. And then, like, there's there's these crazy, like, promos that, like, with the players and the cheerleaders. I mean, could you just give my listeners some insight into, like, what, what was it like being there? Because, man, it comes off, like, just crazy. Basically. It was it was surreal and it was probably the most intense week. It felt it, it was only a week that I was on the ground there, um, but it felt much, much longer because, yeah, myself, Michael Hayes and Bruce Pritchard uh, were brought in to work on the XFL in addition to our WWE duties, because obviously, as you know, WWE didn't go away during, uh, you know, February 2001. We still had shows to do. In fact, very important shows to do because it was the lead up to WrestleMania 17, The Rock versus Austin, you know, culminating with Austin's heel turn. So there was like a this was like super, super important WWE, uh, you know, time period right now. And WCW had just been bought and, and or or close to it. And there was like all this stuff. But, yeah, we, we were sucked in um, and it was it was pretty fascinating to kind of be a fly on the wall and see, you know, the WWE way of doing television production, um, mixing with the NBC way of doing television production and Ebersol and Vince being two, you know, extraordinarily alpha figures. Um, but they're also very good friends. So like they did mesh, but there was the football perspective of it. I and mean, then there was also Vince's perspective of it, which was this, uh, you know, as Bob Costas might say, not enough wwe for wwe fans and not enough football for football fans but you know he wanted to get that like um unlike the xfl like current version like he wanted to take on the nfl and he had tony saragusa on the sidelines bashing him and he had like you know the no fun league and like that kind of thing kind of because that was you know kind of prevalent in the wwe at that time which was like a fuck you attitude to everybody that wasn't wwe so he definitely wanted like and that's the reason why I got sucked in was to do these vignettes, you know, with the cheerleaders and the football players, you know, Vince actively, you know, his perspective on it was like, in all likelihood, the, the players and the cheerleaders are going to date anyway. 
So why not capture the relationship between them? So if something happens on the field, good or bad, you know, it's kind of like I remember, uh, you know, as growing up as a Mets fan and everything in the 80s, there was like a all of a sudden someone flipped the switch and maybe it happened before then. And I was just a kid and never noticed it. But I just remember like there were always like Gary Carter's up at the plate. They're they're cutting to Gary Carter's wife in the stands and Lenny Dykstra's wife. And like all the players wives all of a sudden had a camera always focused on them when their spouse was up to get the reaction shot. And I think like Vince being Vince wanted to like, okay, let's take that. And how could we take it to the next level? Like, we know they're dating and, but she's a cheerleader. And we also do these vignettes introducing them because, you know, they're not, they weren't blind to the fact that they knew that like nobody would know who these players are. That's why I don't know if anyone knows he hates me, his real name, but they all know he, he hate me. Uh, you know, because Vince like, yeah, but they want to put a nickname or they want to put a phrase or whatever on the back of their jersey. Let them. NFL's not going to let them do that. But we are. I mean, there were so many great like and there were great innovations with, you know, this jib camera that they ended up using in the NFL, too. Um, you know, there were so many individual great ideas that were kind of like <laughs> emerged from what was, yes, a giant shit show. You can't deny that. I think, um, you know, in the end of the day, the. The football play, it probably went on because they wanted a debut right after the Super Bowl. Where's my football? You know, that was what Vince was saying in the promos and everything in the press conferences um, that they went on without necessarily being ready yet. I thought, yeah, when I got there to Vegas to watch like the Vegas Outlaws practice right before opening weekend, um, you know, I write about it in the book, too. I, I, I thought it had a very um, Jurassic Park vibe to it. I felt like Jeff Goldblum walking around um, right before, right as John Hammond is giving him the tour. Going, uh, anybody think this shouldn't necessarily happen yet? But it did. <laughs> yeah, there were some there were some football innovations where they were ahead of their time, and then, uh, yeah, as my buddy Conrad Thompson would say, there's some things you watch there that don't exactly play well in 2022. True, um, but. Uh, but that was the XFL. All right, I'm going to keep you for another like six minutes and then I'll get you out of here. Um, I was blown away, or I have been blown away, by how many current people in the business have uh, have put out your book on social. Like uh, Becky Lynch, Natalia, Alexa Bliss. My, I'm guessing if you got some good publicists uh, and a smart book company, they're sending copies um, in advance there. But, you know, you um, I know you still have your connection with Dwayne, obviously, but have you – you must be – I don't maybe pleasantly surprised is not the right word, but you you must be really happy to see the current performers, or at least a number of current performers who are helping you pitch your book. Like they're really into this, even though you know you're not at the their company. Yeah, right no, I'm, I'm thrilled and, and super grateful too. Um, you know, I, I again like you know, Dwayne goes back occasionally, and when he does, I go back with him. So when he last came back, this was the premiere of uh, SmackDown on Fox a few years ago. And we did a promo segment. The Rock did a promo segment with Becky Lynch and uh, Baron Corbin. That's right. And that's when we really got to know Becky. And we worked with her, um, you know, in, in the night before and worked on the promo and got to be friends with her. Uh, and always, you know, whenever I go back to a show, always want to say hi to Becky. Um, you know, Zelina Vega, um, I sent a copy to. We worked with her on Fighting With My Family. She played AJ Lee in the movie. Um, and yeah, we got to work with her and get to know her there. Um, you know, Alexa bliss and, 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 you know, there, there's a whole bunch of current stars that, you know, um, I always go out of my way to, to find and say hi to whenever, uh, I'm at a show backstage and there's like a lot of, you know, I did, you know, I, I was there doing creative consultant from 12, 2012 to 2015. And some of those people overlapped, uh, you know, like, like Seth Rollins, for instance, yeah, right. who's married to Becky, you know, he, he seconded Becky's uh, tweet yep. he wrote on Twitter because the book was in the house and he read it too. So I was yeah over the moon by that because, you know, he's, I'm a huge fan of his and, and he's such a great performer and he didn't have to do that, but he did. Um, yep. But yeah, like I, you know, there, there are plenty of current wrestlers that, uh, you know, that I reached out to and said, Hey, um, I'd love to send you a copy of the book. Uh, and if you like it, uh, feel free to <laughs> feel free to put it over. No pressure, do it or not do it. Um, but what's your address? Let me send it to you because, um, you know, just, I know from experience that there's going to be a lot of, you know, 
nodding while reading it going, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I think they can appreciate a (laughs) lot of the things, but also appreciate this. A lot of these current stars, you know, it's crazy to think about. But we're kids, you know, when I started, I feel like 90 years old now. But like, um, I don't know. I'm not even sure what year. Uh, a lot of the stars were born in, but I know in 1999, they weren't um, adults. <laughs> you know, they were, they were kids going to the shows, watching these angles growing up. So I think there's like a little bit of uh, like, oh yeah, I was, you know, a fan just like you were right. You know, in the eighties uh, I was during your era in writing. So, you know, it, it works out. I like Rollins a lot. He's been on this podcast and uh, I should have mentioned to you at the top, like Paul Heyman's been on this podcast, maybe five or six times. He's like my Charles Grodin of the wrestling world. He's the, uh, he's in that chair. Um, and he's always good. Uh, I'm definitely a Heyman mark. I, I have to cop to it. Um, am I, 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 Brian, correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I feel like when I was just reading all my sort of research on you, have you floated a couple lines to AEW over the years? Like, is that, did, is that correct? Or am I, did I dream this? No, no, literally, like literally a, a couple. Um, you know, okay. I have always, I'm always maintained a great friendship with, with Jericho. Um, you know, he, he called me a couple times, um, you know, and I threw stuff out at him, um, you know, and he, he even called me out one time because he asked me about something and I'm like, well, I'm in Australia, you know, for young rock. I haven't been able to watch the show. And he's like, yeah, but you have a fucking computer. Don't you, you watch the damn thing set you know and I, you know i'm like well i can't argue with that you're right so yeah there there, there are a couple of uh you know I, and i kind of remember i don't remember specifically what the lines were but i'm always you know i love you know if, if, if a wrestler calls me asking for like a line like hey uh, i'd love to help i would yeah takes like i mean take advantage of that uh that that free service all right so the reason i asked that is because i i think mjf's a brilliant performer um his promos are unbelievable um, you, you are probably in the, you know, one, one, one percent of the world who could actually offer some insight into this. Like you're to me, genius level, uh, at, at this stuff the, I, I, I no longer can figure out if it's a work or if he's really in a dispute. And I give everybody credit for that because I, at one time I was thinking, all right, this is absolutely a work between Tony and, and MJF. Then I'm like, you know what? This is a real contract dispute. And this guy is done now. I don't even know. Do you have any, uh, given your expertise, how do you view that situation? Well, I've, I mean, look, I'm a big MJF fan as well. Um, you know, we both have, you know, the whole Jewish from Long Island. That's right. Fan That's right. Things yeah. in common. I'm happy to say I, I got to got to meet him once. Um, and I think he's a really, really cool guy. Um, you know, I saw the promo and like everyone else, it's like, oh, this is a work. Clearly, they wouldn't let you say that if it wasn't a work. And then, you know, he goes radio silent and not only that, but the company is, you know, treating it as if, you know, AEW is responding to his promo as if it was a shoot and he's persona non grata on the website, on their television show, on their social media, on everything else. So, you know, in this particular case, like I don't even want to overstep my bounds and, and text him and be like, Hey, so what's really going on? Because I'm sure there's a reason for everything. Uh, whether it's a shoot reason, whether it's a work reason. Um, but this is too good to just like almost want to be spoiled by what the hell is actually going on. I just want to see it unfold myself. But it was, I think, a master class. The fact that people don't know, the fact that so much has happened in the world of worked shoots and shoot works and, and everything else over the years where you really go, well, what could possibly surprise you now? And I have to, you have to assume it's a blank um and this one you really can't like like look you're you're no um you know like like not you're savvy to the business obviously you've you've talked to wrestlers you've talked to people behind the scenes um and you don't know what's going on so i I do not so i would say like yeah that's like they've, they've done a master class mjf specifically in making you wonder because every day that goes by it lends validity to guess it was a shoot um and every day that goes by where AEW doesn't you know doesn't even acknowledge what was their no, like their number one homegrown star um makes you wonder um yeah so i don't know what the hell's going on but i think it i think it's really really cool that uh something like that could kind of capture fans minds now in a way that 
you never thought was possible. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, two more quick ones and lay out of here. Let me just mention the book again. There's just one problem. True tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in the WWE. Uh, just basically Google that on uh, or send that into Amazon and you can buy it there. I imagine it'll be in bookstores around the country. Hopefully Brian will get to do some uh, um, uh, in-person uh, book signing stuff because in the hopefully as uh, knock on wood uh, things get better with COVID actually people will be able to go to bookstores and, and see authors which is always an amazing thing Brian how do you feel um, you know again I, I talk to obviously a lot of real quote unquote real announcers uh, uh, you know the Joe Bucks and Troy Aikens of the world uh, wrestling has a very very famous history of involving their uh, announcers in storyline including them taking like bumps and um, and and getting dropped on their head and other crazy stuff like that. How do you feel about that? Do, do you, were you as a writer, did you like getting Jim Ross or Michael Cole? McAfee is like all over the place now. So like conceptually, do you like that? Or are you, are you, were you on the side of let the announcers be the announcers don't involve them in storyline? Well, it's, it's twofold. First of all, McAfee is, you know, example of doing it the right way. As far as someone who's a former athlete and can, um, you know, not only handle himself in a match, but excel in a match. Um, yeah. you know, and I was always a big fan of Jesse Ventura growing up. Um, and it was always kind of special whenever, you know, he, he rarely as an announcer, he rarely got involved physically. Um, but whenever like a wrestler announcer would take off the headset and, you know, insert himself into the action, it was always a special time. I think, um, you know, as far as using like Jr. and Michael Cole, in, in physical things, I think at the time it was, you know, we did it because it, we knew it would, you know, be an easy pop, an easy reaction. JR was, you know, such a sympathetic character and they're the closest characters to you because a wrestler might be on 10 minutes on a two hour show. The announcers are on the entire time, 100%. There's never a time where they're not on unless it's an angle or something like that. So in hindsight, I think it was I think it was cheap and easy for us to use, you know, Jr. sympathy angles for like, oh, let's get heat on Jr. That will always get a pop, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, and Stone Cold can make the save, you know, like whatever babyface was going to make the save for him. Or we really want Triple H to get heat. Well, uh, you know, if he beats a make Jr. bleed at Madison Square Garden, that ought to do it. Um Right. And it's really, you know, you 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 know that like Jr. and Michael Cole are pros; they'll do whatever's asked of them. Um, but yeah, I think like when you're caught up and like you want to have a great segment, you want to like uh, get a big pop and everything. Uh, and the in the opposite for Cole, because Cole went the heel route, and you know that became Vince's obsession for a while. Heel Michael Cole uh, to yes. you know the point where it's it's hard to you know it's really really. Um, you know, saying something for Cole to be able to, you know, just one day flip the switch and turn on and be a heel after being like this neutral guy all his life. And then similarly, when that angle was done with Lawler and Cena and the match at WrestleMania and barbecue sauce and all that kind of stuff um, to then flip the switch and go back to being neutral and no longer insulting Daniel Bryan and everything. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, 100 percent hindsight. Uh, I don't think we should have done it as much as we did it. I think we overdid it. I think uh, it wasn't really necessarily fair to JR and Cole, even though they always did it, you know, uh, and never, um, you know, tried to get out of it or anything like that. Um, I, I do think, I think Vince had a, like a, you know, he had this very unique relationship with Jim, uh, which Jim has written about uh, very successfully yes, in yes. two books. So it might have gone a little bit more than, you know, from my perspective, either getting heat on a heel or a pop from babyface. Um, but, yeah, I think the McAfee route, um, you know, and hopefully Corey Graves, I don't know, you know, if, if he, 
you know, gets medically cleared and never wants to go, you know, he'd be a great guy to do that too, because they know what they're doing out there and that's what they trained for and lived for. Um, but yeah, Cole and, and JR, I mean, there's a lot of individual great moments like the XFL, like a lot of things. Um, but I think it was a crutch that we uh, overused. Last one. Um, you know that um, sort of the history of wrestling is that everybody comes back. By the way, I'm proud of myself being the only podcast. I'm not going to ask you about The Rock <laughs> coming back to WrestleMania. The um, You know that the sort of the history of the business is that everybody comes back at some point, not necessarily to the same company, but they, they, they come back. Um, do you, do you think you, you have a very successful career now, obviously with, um, at your production company, young rock is a hit and congratulations on that. Do you think there's any part of you that would want to come back for a week or two just to write? I know if Dwayne is involved, you'll, you'll be writing and maybe that satisfies whatever that gene is, but I understand it. Like I, I, I have, I'm, you know, again, as someone who's, who's read and listened to so many podcasts in the business, I really agree with all the people who say there's nothing like the rush you could get from going out in front of 20,000 people. And if I was writing this stuff, there's probably is very few things in the world that are a bigger rush than an audience reacting to a line that you wrote. Like you can't get that in a sitcom because like you got to, unless the audience is there live, like maybe you get that. But if the audience isn't there live, you're just hoping like that the critics respond great. So for you, like, do you think that you'll ever just want to go back to the arena even for a little bit? Because you can't really duplicate, I would imagine, the rush of a live crowd at, like, uh, um, Madison Square Garden or, you know, uh, the the biggest arena in Los Angeles, like, reacting to something that you Yeah. Wrote. And by the way, I don't know what they call staples now either. Um <laughs> I know. I, I my brain was working. I was going to say yeah. crypto, whatever, but I don't even know I'm if that's sure. the place anymore. But you know what? I know it sounds like a cop out answer, but but when the rock goes back, that does scratch that itch, um, because yeah. you know all of a sudden, you know you're you're not only are you writing for WWE when when you're you know when the rock comes back and he's you know kind enough to want me to come with him and you know we go to the shows and put up the hotel and all that kind of thing, but. Um, the stakes aren't higher because the rock's not doing like a, uh, you know, a lower card angle. If he's doing something that's going to be the, uh, the thing on the show. So that definitely scratches that itch. Um, you know, outside of that, if rock all of a sudden, you know, what he, uh, you know, was, was, you know, approached by space aliens and said, I'm going to be leaving this planet now. And there was no chance of him ever going back to WWE, um, you know, I don't know if I would necessarily like have this itch because I haven't been away from it that long. You know, I've only been away from it, you know, full time, we, we, you know, completely away from it for seven years uh, and had been in it for 16. So it's not like, you know, so much time has passed, especially with Rock coming back to the angle with Becky. And, you know, since I've you know left several WrestleManias and, um, you know, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, like I've always look, I've always um, had the advantage, I guess, of like if there was a show at MSG or in Brooklyn, um, you know, I could always go back and, you know, maybe like a fine Miz and maybe like, hey, what, let's work on your promo individually. Yeah. What the hell? Uh, nobody's going to say, no, wait a second. You don't have an ID. Get out of here. You know, they'll always be very forthcoming and, and open and that kind of thing. But no, I actually I think it's going to take at least the amount of time I spent in WWE to equal that outside of WWE. Um, and at that point I'll be so, um, you know, out of it and, and not like, you know, be like, I don't know, making all these eighties and nineties references and the people of 2033 looking at me, like, what is this guy talking about? I don't know how effective it will be, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have that desire now. But who knows? Maybe one day it will come back. And I also know that break glass in case of emergency, rock coming back. Uh, you better be ready to do it because it's going to happen. Listen, Brian, I, you, I reached out to you, whatever it was, in March and April telling you I really wanted to talk to you. Uh, it wasn't bullshit. Like, I could talk to you for another, like, five hours. I think your background is just incredibly fascinating, especially given the career that I'm in. Um, I, I really, uh, I'm really rooting for this book to do well. And so let me give, uh, 
Let me give the uh, let me put you over once again. Brian Gewertz is an executive producer for NBC's Young Rock. That's part of his uh, role as a senior vice president of development at Seven Bucks Productions. That, as I have said before, is the production company co-founded by Dwayne Johnson and his producing partner, Danny Garcia. If you don't know who Dwayne Johnson is, I can't help you at this point. Um, uh, Brian's book is There's Just One Problem, True Tales from the Former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. I think it officially comes out. Is it August 16th? August 16th, yeah. Okay, all right. So we're taping it the week it um, the week it, we tape this. I should say the week it comes out. I have no doubt it's going to get a lot of attention. Brian will do much bigger podcasts and forums than this one for sure. Brian, listen, man, you gave me an hour. I really, really appreciate appreciate it. My only hope is that in some of the questions I asked you, that will help you in uh, future interviews as you sort of hear yourself answer these questions. But I really, seriously, in all serious in sincerity, I, I wish you the best of luck with the book. I respect um, how much passion. And uh, and how much love you, you put into the book? It's very very clear that as you read, um, as you read it. So um, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast, and uh, and best of luck with this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, you know, people can't see it, but I've been appreciatively nodding for like the past thirty seconds. So thank you, and appreciate all the kind words. And I had a lot of fun uh, talking to you. So and, and let's do it again sometime too. Let me let me try to equal. Uh, you know, I don't know if I could be. Charles Grodin, um, but I could at least be, you know, Al Roker or something and, uh, you know, come by more often. You have the invite. You, you, and yeah, there'll be no snook of coconut on your head either. Fair, fair be, enough. We'll, we'll make this good. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Brian Gortz for uh, giving me as much time as he did. Yeah, we went pretty long. I could have talked for much longer. Again, I, I just, I find that intersection of writing for wrestling and um, just really... And just how one goes about it, how one looks at it, the fact that you got to know all these backstories. It's just really interesting to me as a writer to see how these uh, skilled professionals do that. So I thank Brian for, um, for his time, and I wish him the best of luck with his book. The podcast before this one was a conversation with Jason Reed, who's a senior NFL writer for ESPN's Anscape. He has a new book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America did a podcast on Brittany Griner and what happens next with her with a hostage policy expert, Dr. Danny Gilbert, and ESPN investigative reporter TJ Quinn, who's been following this podcast. Joe Buck on Vince Scully was the podcast before that. Also had Ian Dark come on talking about the Kobe Collin World Cup games for Fox later this year. Uh, head to the archives. There should be um, some stuff that's of... Uh, of interest to you, particularly if you like sports media, not too long ago, a uh, 63-minute conversation with ESPN chairman Jimmy Pitaro on where that uh, where that company is going. If you like this stuff, uh, please leave us a review. Five stars is always great, and a nice note really helps things continue. I uh, want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work, doing a lot of hard work this week on this podcast. It's, uh, it's greatly appreciated. Thanks to everybody at Canes 13, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.